notice in verse 10 it says, For we have heard. I want you to understand, this is the normal, God-ordained method. Hearing the Word of God, that's how we are saved. Hearing the Word of God, that's how we are sanctified. And think about your own testimony for a moment. Someone imparted to you some knowledge, some evidence, some appeal to the power of God to both save and destroy. That is why, as a Reformed church, we believe that preaching is the primary means of grace. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Good to be back in the Lord's house. Let's take our Bibles this evening and be turning in the Old Testament to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. We began last month on our Sunday evenings together to um, walk through an exposition of this wonderfully rich Old Testament book, really one of my favorite Old Testament books. And so often we are unfamiliar with the Old Testament and it's somewhat my task to make us more familiar with it. Um, each Lord's Day that we have evening services together. I want to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2, and we're going to look at this chapter in its entirety. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid an order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men laid down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt, And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, And deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. 
They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us bow for prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture, this wonderful story that uh, so many of us are familiar with, but we pray that by your blessed Holy Spirit that you would help our hearts and our minds to understand the truths that we need to live our lives for your glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. The story that I just read to you is a, a popular story really for several factors. First of all, Rahab's faith is actually commended not just in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, and that's what makes us so familiar uh, with this story, because the author of Hebrews speaks about Rahab's faith as well as James. Secondly, her former profession as a prostitute almost makes this read sort of like an interesting novel, and that's another reason that this is a favorite story of many Christians. And then, of course, there's that third factor in which many view her lies and her deception as compromising Christian ethics, which sort of raises the question, how then can the New Testament commend Rahab's actions when it included lying and deception? Well, on this last point, I think it is both sad and short-sighted on the part of critics, because I believe that the emphasis of this story is not the lie that Rahab told, but the truth that she believed. Here we have the beautiful story of God's sovereign, saving hand, snatching one of his own sheep from an immoral profession, and then using her strategy of risking her life, as well as the lives of those in her family, to save the lives of those in her family, as well as the spies. And I think, therefore, the New Testament rightly commends her for her brave, faith-fueled action. There are others, and I need to say this at the beginning, who downplay Rahab's profession as a prostitute or a harlot, and uh, they believe that she was nothing more than an innkeeper or a tavern keeper. Uh, This was um, the position of Josephus, for example, because the Hebrew word zona uh, can refer to a prostitute, but it can also refer to a woman that just has dealings with men, business dealings with men, something like a barmaid or a tavern keeper. But personally, I am not convinced that Rahab was anything other than what the Bible says she was. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. And furthermore, I think it's clear that she did lie. She did use deception in more than one way. And uh, we're going to deal with her actions head on when we get to those verses. But I want you to understand something that I told you last month when we began our study in the book of Joshua. And that is that all of these sorts of details, I don't think Joshua, the writer of this book, wants us to get caught up in. Instead, remember, he is writing about God's command to him, Joshua, the commander of God's people, to conquer the land of Canaan. This shady lady of Jericho, Rahab, was actually an ancestor to Christ. That's important to remember. It's also important to remember that Joshua is a figure of Christ. Um, He points forward to Christ, and in fact, Jesus shared his name in the Hebrew, Yeshua or Joshua. All of this points to the deep theology behind Joshua's record that he gives in this book of the larger picture of God's conquering redemption of the world. This is not just about God conquering uh, the promised land that he promised to Abraham. This is about God conquering the world for his glory. And we see here that Rahab, a Gentile, became a citizen of Israel and she became an ancestor of Jesus. She married a man who was of the tribe of Judah. His name was Salmon. Their son was Boaz, who married Ruth, the Moabitess, and their son was Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. So in Joshua chapter 2, we see that God's people are ready. They are ready to take the necessary steps to conquer the land and to conquer the people of Canaan. However, the conquering begins with God taking steps to conquer one soul, and that is Rahab, for his glory. And I want to look at Joshua chapter 2 under several headings. The first heading, I want to talk about a sovereign purpose. We see this in verses 1 and 2. There was a divine purpose behind Joshua's human orders found there at the beginning of verse 1. Notice your Bibles. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. 
Now spies are by nature sent secretly. So the secrecy was not a reference to a secret kept from the inhabitants of Jericho because that goes without saying. No, Joshua sent the two men secretly because this was a secret that was being kept from God's people in order for them to view the land. And you say, well, why keep the spies a secret from his own people? And second, why just two? That doesn't seem like enough. Well, Joshua was a wise man and by doing this, he... um shows to us that he learned his lesson from the last time. In Numbers chapter 13, under the leadership of Moses, Moses sent 12 spies in, and you remember that 10 came back with a bad report. Only two came back with a good report, Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 said, we can't conquer. Joshua and Caleb said, we can conquer. And so there was division among God's people, and most of the people didn't have the guts or the faith to conquer the land. Joshua understands as a leader of God's people that another report like that could demoralize or paralyze the people. Joshua could not afford another 40 wasted years in the wilderness. They must act now. They must conquer now. And so Joshua selects two trusted undercover agents. That's the best way that we can look at it. And I think here we're reminded on the side that good leadership does not always let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Good leadership, strong leadership is always working behind the scenes to advance God's agenda and to protect God's people. And uh, John F. Kennedy, who I admire quite well, um, was asked one time what he wanted on his tombstone. And he said he would like them to write, he kept the peace. He kept the peace. Here we see Joshua and two trusted advisors plotting and executing an espionage mission to honor God, to secure the future good of the people of God, Joshua does not want another division because too many hands are involved in the decision. And so Joshua gives these orders to these two spies. Now, the focus is the mission of these spies, which is gathering intelligence. And we see that in verse 1, especially, as the Bible says, in Jericho. Now, what the intel Joshua was seeking, the text doesn't say. In fact, he might not have even known. Um, He was just doing his job as a thorough and thoughtful leader. And so he recruits those he trusts to help wade through the intelligence that he might be able to gather from Jericho. And note in verse verse 1 how these two spies were smart in going about their mission. It says, And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now the house of a prostitute was a good location for spies to hang out. That was a good place to sort of stay under the radar. And it was also a good place to hear information from traveling men who might spread some gossip. This was all part of the espionage mission to gather intel, perhaps information on how to overrun the formidable fortress of Jericho, which essentially was a a military outpost. And so I do not believe for one second that the spies were going to the house of a prostitute for immoral reasons. I've known many military people in my life, and I understand something about them. Deception is a major tactical strategy, especially in military reconnaissance, which is basically what this is. We should never underestimate a soldier's immense discipline when in the midst of executing a mission. My uncle was a platoon leader in, in Vietnam. He was a lieutenant. And I remember him telling me sometimes, Uh, one time that once a soldier always a soldier he said for example anytime he goes into a restaurant he always faces the door wherever he sits because a soldier once a soldier is always a soldier they always have that discipline they understand the mission so they're not going to the house of a prostitute for immoral reasons yet in spite of the spies attempts to learn information and to sort of stay undercover they didn't go unnoticed because notice verse number two it says um And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So someone in the city, some people saw um, that these were men from Israel. They told it to the king. He would have been a ruler of this independent city-state known as Jericho. He knew these spies were men of Israel. He knew they came to search out the land and no doubt this would have struck fear and terror in his heart because his city could be under attack by morning light by the armies of Yahweh at that. And this planned attack was a threat to all the other city-states of Canaan. But what I want you to see in these first two verses is that the king of heaven was sovereignly orchestrating salvation before he was ever going to be about the business of executing the destruction of Jericho. You see, in one sense, Joshua didn't need to send two spies. Now, to his credit, he was being a good commander and planning carefully before attacking, but God actually sovereignly led Joshua to send spies into Jericho, not for Jericho's immediate destruction, but for Rahab's imminent salvation. 
And I don't think there's any way to, to find out, um, there's any way for us to say that Joshua was aware of Rahab, that Joshua was, was aware of what God was doing. He didn't know Rahab and neither did the spies. But sovereignly and even amazingly, God was orchestrating these events. And here is another parallel to the life of Christ. In John 4, 4, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, of course, from a human perspective, he not only didn't have to go through Samaria, but all things considered, normally wouldn't have gone through Samaria. But Jesus was not only truly man, he was truly God. And he taught on one occasion, I will not lose one of my sheep. And you know the story in John 4, he had to pass through Samaria sovereignly because he was going to interact with that notoriously immoral Samaritan woman at the well. And here we have the Jesus or Joshua of the Old Testament sending spies into Jericho to fulfill God's sovereign purpose because these spies would interact with this notoriously immoral harlot named Rahab. So just understand This strange and glorious story has a sovereign purpose behind it. And I just want to stop and tell you that God has a sovereign purpose for your life. He has a sovereign purpose for every circumstance and every situation and every trial and every blessing. God is working behind the scenes to work into your life what his will is for your life. So we see a sovereign purpose. But secondly, this story is marked by a selective plan. And we see this in verses 3 through 7. First, the king's plan. Notice verse 3. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. Now, obviously, the king's plan was to find the spies, to arrest them, to interrogate them, maybe to torture them, um, and then send them on their way as a threat that if the armies of Israel attacked, the king's armies would be ready. Or maybe he was going to arrest them and kill them, chop their heads off, send those heads rolling to Joshua's feet to send some sort of nonverbal message. But the king would have naturally understood that spies, both in ancient times and actually in modern times as well, oftentimes did business in houses of prostitution. And so the text doesn't say how he knew this, but I think it's safe to assume that this was a natural place for him to look. But notice we read that Rahab also had plans of her own in verse 4. But the woman who had taken the two men, that is Rahab, and had hidden them, And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Some of you are familiar with the ancient law code of Hammurabi. It says, and I quote, if felons are banded together in a prostitute's house and she has not told the king's palace, then the prostitute shall be put to death. But it doesn't appear that Rahab is concerned at all about that. In fact, she does quite the opposite. Verse four says, the woman had taken the two spies and hidden them. And further, she lied about it. She told the king's men, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Well, actually, she did. She knew exactly who the spies were. She knew exactly where they were from. In fact, let's just be honest. This wasn't a slight fabrication. This is a revision of events, completely the opposite of what actually happened. Because notice in verse 5, And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went, went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. This statement where she says, Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them, is particularly crafty. Because this was her way to get the king's men out of the house before they had a chance to search the house. This is a straight up lie. And the cherry on top is not only the lie, but the deception that she actually is telling them, I really want you to catch them, pursue them quickly. And we know that after turning the the place, the house of prostitution upside down to find the spies, if that would have happened, they would have went to the roof and they would have discovered Rahab's involvement and she would be as good as dead. So she's really taking a risk here. Notice verse six, but she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. What a demonstration of faith. A.W. Pink, a famous reform writer who I have the utmost admiration for, suggests that the presence of flax on the roof indicates, indicates that Rahab Uh, No more was in the business of prostitution, but that she had a legitimate moral business of working and selling flax, just like the Proverbs 31 woman. And I'm not sure if that flax indicates a changed lifestyle at this point. Uh, Perhaps it's true that Rahab was making an attempt to make a living in a moral way, but maybe she just couldn't quite break away from her lifestyle. 
this sort of reminds us that conversion is instantaneous. Justification, as we saw this morning, is, is instantaneous, but sanctification is a very long process. Sometimes it has immediate results. At other times, there's an intense struggle with sin. And anyone who tells you any differently might mean well, but the reality is, as a pastor for some 20 years, I have known many Christians who struggle intensely with sin. The question to ask yourself this evening is, if you are struggling with sin, are you fighting against your carnal desires or have you given up? You see, true Christians don't give up even if true Christians sometimes give in. And while I'm at it, I might as well make another statement based upon the principle of John 7, 17, 17, where Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Understand, Rahab, even if she was converted for some time, didn't own a Bible. She didn't have scripture to sanctify her she was not a member of the israelite society in fact her past was likely filled with so much heartache being part of a pagan society being thrust in to the business of prostitution from her vantage point this at least made her have the ability to make a living and indeed it could be true that she was part of the pagan temple prostitution ring In that case, the dark forces of hell may have convinced her that she was doing some good to appease the wrath of the gods for her and her customers. But I do think that she was already converted, and we're going to see that in the next points. But I also think she had turned away from her pagan gods. In fact, she had um, seen the good that she could do in saving these Israelite spies. She was even resourceful, resourceful enough to find a way to put those flax stocks to good use in hiding these men and it worked notice verse 7 so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out her plan was selective and executed to perfection but neither she nor the spies were quite out of the woods because there's that little detail in verse 7 which is added to show that far from escaping the men were now stuck in the city notice it says and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out in other words nobody was going to be let in nobody was going to be let out forgive me if I've told you this story but one time in college there was a, a problem with theft in the dormitory and so they planted on a, I don't know, a $50 bill, some ink that was invisible. And when that $50, uh, $50 bill was stolen, um, they took all of the, the men that were in the dorm into the gymnasium and shut the doors and locked the doors. And they had a line of men standing across the basketball court. And we weren't getting out and nobody was getting in until we revealed our hands. That's kind of a precarious situation if you're guilty of something or you're trying to run from something. And that's sort of what is now taking place in the story. But this story just keeps getting better and better. It's a story not only about a sovereign purpose and a selective plan, but number three, a simple profession. And we see this in verses 8 through 11, this Canaanite pagan, an Amorite at that, makes a clear profession of her faith in Yahweh. First of all, she uh, confirms the promise of Yahweh. Notice in verse 8, before the men laid down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, she begins this conversation, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. I mean, her faith is clearly indicated here how the Lord she says notice she doesn't say uh, just some other God she says the Lord that is Yahweh as if he is the one true and living God and she says here um, regarding the promise of Yahweh that notice in verse 10 it says for we have heard I want you to understand this is the normal God-ordained method hearing the word of God that's how we are saved Hearing the word of God, that's how we are sanctified. And think about your own testimony for a moment. Someone imparted to you some knowledge, some evidence, some appeal to the power of God to both save and destroy. That is why, as a Reformed church, we believe that preaching is the primary means of grace. Of my own people, the Amorites, how they were devoted to destruction, her belief is really in a sense not so much different than ours because notice in verse 10 it says for we have heard i want you to understand this is the normal god-ordained method hearing the word of god that's how we are saved 
Hearing the word of God, that's how we are sanctified. And think about your own testimony for a moment. Someone imparted to you some knowledge, some evidence, some appeal to the power of God to both save and destroy. That is why, as a Reformed church, we believe that preaching is the primary means of grace. We believe in a verbal message that comes with power. We believe in a verbal message that comes with power and anything else that a church is associated with that diminishes the preaching of the word is something that we as a church want to stay away from. Now, people disagree with us and you will see people come into our church and leave, not because they're against the preaching or the teaching, but because they have a different philosophy of ministry. They want social events. They want ministries on the side. They want, they, they want to kind of look good before the world. They want a platform for themselves. And for seven years, Jeff and I have been very clear that there is a philosophy to our church ministry. It's the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. And Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by what? Hearing. That's how Rahab was saved. It takes a parent or a preacher or a friend to tell us. She believed because someone told her of God's power, listen to this, to destroy his enemies and to save his people. You know, true faith is based in some knowledge at least. Faith is therefore true faith anyway, not some merely warm, fuzzy feeling. If you doubt that, go and study Jesus' parable of the soils. There were many people excited in that little parable that weren't truly saved. And I can give you an analogy in terms of romance. People who fall in love have some knowledge about the other person. I mean, even romance itself is not based principally just on feelings, but also knowledge. You've got to know the person's interests, their background, all of that stuff. Well, Rahab heard of Yahweh's background, his power to both save and destroy. James 4.12 says that God alone is able to save and to destroy. I remember when I was a senior in high school, you could pay $5, $10, I don't remember what it was, to take a compatibility test. I don't know if any of you have ever done this, but I actually paid my hard-earned money for a compatibility test. And I remember they gave you this printout and it was sealed in an envelope and everyone's opening up and reading it and yikes, the girls that were on my list, you gotta be kidding me. And so for the rest of the year, you couldn't even look them in the eye. They knew that you were on their list and um, it was an embarrassing thing. But as with a compatibility test, sometimes what you hear strikes fear when you get the results. This is what happened to Rahab. She heard that Yahweh was powerful, and that fear drew her to him. Now, you may be more spiritual than me, but I can tell you what drew me to God was my fear of God, my fear of hell. And my fear of God still draws me to God. You know why? Because I'd rather be his friend than his enemy. And that was true of Rahab as well. Her faith is evidenced not only in the fact that she confirms the promise of Yahweh and the power of Yahweh, but also the preeminence of Yahweh. Notice verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's that last phrase. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That points to the preeminence of God. Fear of your enemy in war can lead to surrender and defeat, and that's exactly what happened with Rahab. She understood she was an enemy of God. She humbly came before Yahweh, believing in him. This points again to the preeminence of God that she had in her heart. She wanted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be her God, her personal God. Now, such is the expectation for Israelites, right? Deuteronomy 4.39, know therefore today, lay it in your heart that the Lord God is in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other God. But from a Gentile Amorite, saying in verse 11 that the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, I mean, she's basically quoting Deuteronomy 4.39 without even knowing it. That's the spirit of God working in her heart. She was a stranger to the covenants of promise without hope, without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12, this Amorite. Now, there were many ites in the land of Canaan. 
There were the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. But it was the Amorites, I think Genesis 15 points out, in particular, probably because they sacrificed their children to their gods, that God was going to punish especially and wipe them out of the land. But here is Rahab, the greatest enemy of God, an Amorite. In belief with both her head, what she heard and knew, and also with her heart. You say, how do we know she had faith in her heart? Because of what she did. She had a faith that worked. She believed in Yahweh's power and his promise and his preeminence and also his protection. And that takes us to the next point. This is a story of a sovereign purpose and a selective plan and a simple profession, but it's also a story of a solemn promise. We see this in verses 12 through 17. This leads us to the age-old question, are the lies of spies okay in God's eyes? Well, what does the biblical record say about Rahab's actions of lying to the king's men, her deception, her, her, her hiding of the spies? Well, skip with me to chapter 6 in verse 17. It says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live. Comma. Why? Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. It looks to me like she's being rewarded for her lies. Would you agree with me? What about um, Hebrews chapter 11? Turn over there with me for a moment. I mentioned earlier that the New Testament commends Rahab for her faith. What is Hebrews Chapter 11 say, beginning in verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Verse 31, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Again, Scripture seems to commend her lying. Skip over two or three pages to the book of James. I can just keep going. James 2 and verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You see, no matter how you slice it, Rahab's actions from every conceivable New Testament angle seem to legitimize her lying ways. This is seen even in the arrangement of the spy's escape, which takes place in the context of a covenant of love. We're talking about a solemn promise. Notice in verse 12, Now then, she says, Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. It's that word kindly that I want you to underline. It's used twice there. One, to describe her kind relations to the spies, and then the spies promise back to her to treat her kindly, to protect her. It's this reciprocal framework of kindness. It is the Hebrew word hesed, which also can be translated as love. So think about this. Rahab's actions are described as loving or kind. Her treatment of the spies, her lies, her deception. And this just continues into verse 13, that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to me and deliver our lives from death. Now, we need to stop here for a moment because there is much that can be said, for example, about the fact that salvation is often a family matter. Here we have a woman who, because of her faith, her entire household was saved. Does that not remind you of Acts 16.31 and Lydia and her household? Israel celebrated the Passover in the context of a family with the head of the home in charge of the ceremony. And if the head of the home did what was right, guess what? The rest of the family was saved. What do we read in Joshua chapter 24? Even Joshua, speaking on behalf of his entire family, he said, as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord, Joshua 24, 15. Now we need to be careful here because we are not saved on the coattails of someone else's faith. From physical danger, the whole family wanted to be saved. That's the idea. Physical danger in this life. Verse 13, that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. There's no mention here of anyone else in the house having faith in Yahweh in the spiritual sense like Rahab did. But there does seem to be some faith that God can protect them in this life. Similar to the context of a covenantal home. And there is at least the signal that some in this household may be tempted out of fear 
to sabotage the plan and to break the oath or the covenant. Notice verse 14, and the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly, hesed, a term of covenant, and faithfully with you. If you do not tell. Now, I don't think that they were speaking to Rahab because she had proven trustworthy already, right? She had hid the spies and risked her life. If you do not tell is actually a plural pronoun in the Hebrew. I like to translate it this way, if y'all don't tell. That's the best way to translate it. The family must guard the secret or all bets are off. This is a covenantal sort of protection. And speaking about covenantal betrayal, how many covenant children betray the covenantal home. What a warning for us even today. One can be baptized in the church, hear the saving gospel, be under the protection of God, but if they break the covenants, it jeopardizes their personal salvation, not because salvation once had can ever be lost, but because family protection within the covenant is never enough to save eternally. There's a sense in which a covenantal home provides a lot of protection and a lot of benefits, but not necessarily unto salvation. And we see that in picture form here. Personal individual faith is still critical and necessary. That's what we've been talking about as we've gone through the book of Romans. Romans 3, Romans 4, we are justified by faith alone. It's our faith in Christ, personal faith. So true faith is personal and true faith is active It seeks to take refuge in God and his salvation, not merely in a covenantal home being protected and blessed by God outwardly. Well, Rahab's household made an oath. They were protected only insofar as they were faithful. Notice verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. So there are oaths and promises by both sides. This is a covenant. Her house was obviously constructed on the city wall of Jericho. Incidentally, Um, archaeologists have discovered houses on the city wall of the ancient ruins of Jericho, perhaps even discovering the very one that this story took place in. But verse 17, that phrase, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath. Do you see that? I think it reminds us that God is guiltless when those in covenantal homes prove to be unfaithful and break the covenant. That's sort of the practical application. But back to verse number 13, Deliver our lives from death. She reveals that she believes this will happen. She's trusting God's promise of salvation, evidenced in her actions. This is all James 2.25 means when it speaks about Rahab's actions revealing her righteousness, that she was justified by works. James is not saying that she wasn't justified by faith. He's simply saying that her faith is a faith that works. It reveals itself. So that faith in Jesus is not a one-time thing. It is active. It is continual. If you have faith in Jesus presently, you can have assurance of your salvation, not because of some decision you made when you were 10. Where is your faith now? She had an active faith. And here we learn that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is still true, but the faith that justifies never comes alone. That's something the reformers taught. But as we follow the story, apparently it wasn't just Rahab who had faith in Yahweh, but also the rest of her household. That's evident in what happens next. This is a story, number one, of a sovereign purpose. Number two, a selective plan. Number three, a simple profession. Number four, a solemn promise. Number five, a sly procedure. We see this in verses 18 through 21. We really still haven't answered that question. Are the lies of spies okay in God's eyes? But just understand this, that at this point, Rahab herself has become a spy. In fact, we see here in verses 18 through 21 that she gets involved neck deep in this sly procedure concocted by the spies and agreed upon by Rahab, now the third spy. Notice verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. You shall gather into your house 
your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I mean, this is a very sly maneuver, a very sly procedure, top-notch secrecy. And here we see three practical ways that Rahab and her family demonstrated their faith and faithfulness in the covenantal arrangement. Number one, we see in verse 18 and 21 that the scarlet cord needed to be placed in the window. We see that in verse 18, and verse 21 confirms that, in fact, she put it in the window. Secondly, Rahab's entire family had to stay in their own house. We saw that in verses 18 and 19. If anyone goes out of the doors of your house, for example, verse 19, into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We'll be guiltless. So the court had to be placed in the window. Nobody could leave the house. And then number three, the covenant made with the spies must be kept secret. They couldn't tell anyone. Verse 20, if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. Now here we need to pay very careful attention because there is a certain church tradition that dates back um, at least as far as um, Clement of Rome. It, It could even go back further than that. That says that scarlet cord was meant to represent the blood of Christ. Now before you discount that idea out of hand, I want you to consider several things. Number one, it is at least true on the surface, is it not? That Jesus Christ is the scarlet cord running through all of Scripture. I don't believe that we need to read Christ into every text, but in one sense we don't have to do that because he seems to jump out off every text. In fact, if the Bible were a -a jack-in-a-box, when the lever is turned and the Scripture's pages are turned, Jesus just pops up everywhere. This is the reformed hermeneutical interpretive principle of a literal, historical, redemptive approach to Scripture that simply says the Bible is all about Christ. Now, who would disagree with that? Secondly, remember that during the Passover, which, by the way, Rahab heard of, remember she told the spies, I heard about how Yahweh dried up the Red Sea. What happened in the Passover? Well, the blood of lambs were spread on the doorposts of the homes and I know this is an elementary question but what color is blood it's red it's scarlet and the new testament is clear that Jesus's blood was that of the old testament fulfilled Passover blood of the lambs in Egypt so we're on pretty good ground and then the third thing that I would say is that Rahab didn't have a lamb to slaughter and furthermore putting blood on her house would be a dead giveaway that something fishy was going on But a scarlet cord? Now that's an inside message, a sly procedure. Furthermore, just as Israelite homes were saved from destruction by the red blood as a marker, so too we see that this red cord hanging from her home spares those in her home, including herself, from the army of the Lord. The angel of the Lord saw the blood on the houses in Egypt and he spared those inside. And the army of the Lord saw the scarlet cord when they invaded Jericho. And Rahab and her household were spared. So I quite like to think that that scarlet cord probably does represent the blood of Jesus Christ. But verse 21 shows Rahab's faith on display. Notice it says again, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This was her faith in action, right? Her faith wasn't dead, it was living. She had a faith that worked. And now I think we are prepared to answer that question, are the lies of spies okay in God's eyes? And I would answer that question by asking you a question. What would you do if someone knocked on your door and said, are you hiding any Jews in this house? If you're hiding them, when the occupying government says it's against the law, is that really against the law? Especially if you know these Jews being caught are going to be sent to concentration camps and killed. Well, of course, I'm speaking about Corey Ten Boom, her and her family hiding Jews in their home, helping them escape during the Holocaust. And uh, do you think that Corey's father, a Dutch watchmaker, had faith in God? Do you think that Corey Ten Boom had faith in God? It surely appears that she did from her testimony after the war. Did they risk their lives? Of course. And did that honor God? 
I think we would all say it did honor God. What about Oskar Schindler, a German industrialist turned Nazi who saved 1,200 Jews in Nazi-occupied Poland by employing them in his enamelware and ammunitions factories? And you say, okay, you've really crossed the line now. He made a profit and he was a Nazi. But then I would ask back, did he save lives? And you say, well, well yeah, but, but he was dishonest with the government. And I say, uh-huh. And did his disobedience honor God because he saved lives? And does the government sometimes do things that are underhanded? You've got to know how to play their game. Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Incidentally, Corey Tim Boom and Oscar Schindler are both among the righteous among the nations at a Holocaust museum in Israel. Uh, a sort of monument that dedicates non-Jews that protected Jews. So from every angle, it appears, especially if we use those modern-day analogies, that what Rahab did was not only not sinful, but it was commendable. It was honorable in God's eyes. Remember, in wartime situations, military operations, and you can even think of the sports world, deception is a vital, intelligent, wise, honorable, and honored tactic. And I tell the soccer players that I coach all of the time. I like nice boys off the field, but I like mean boys on the field. Sometimes it's hard to teach an athlete to be aggressive in a game, particularly if they have a tender conscience and they're a nice person. But in sports, if you aren't aggressive, and in sports, if you don't use deception, you're not going to be that good. This is real-life war. And the armies of Israel were promised Jericho. And I think these spies owed it to Rahab, this God-fearing Gentile, to concoct a plan that on the surface, in any other situation, would be considered a lie and deception. But understand that the Ten Commandments are ten principles. There is wisdom and judgment in how we apply them. Now, I'm not suggesting that if your mother tells you to clean your room and you say you did when you didn't, that you're justified in that. This is an exceptional case what I like to call a situational necessity. But this is a story of a sovereign purpose, a selective plan, a simple profession, a solemn promise, a sly procedure, then number six, a saving protection. We see this in verses 22 through 24. The spies ran to the hills. They hid away for a few days until the coast was cleared. Notice verse 22. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then verse 23 tells us, they reported back to Joshua, their commander. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills, passed over, and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. He's the commander of God's people. And they told him all that had happened to them. This would have included the covenant that they made with Rahab. This would have included, look, Joshua, we made this deal with this harlot. What? Yeah, that, that's what we did, but it, it's, it's okay. It's on the up and up. She's a God-fearing Gentile, and she wants to repudiate her people and belong to Israel. And Joshua said, okay. But then in verse 24, they tell him, and this is what I want you to see, their belief in God's saving protection, not merely of Rahab, but of Israel. Notice verse 24, and they said to Joshua, this is their report. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Does that language sound familiar? If it does, it's because they're quoting exactly what Rahab said in the house of prostitution. In verse 9 and verse 11, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. That was the intelligence they gathered. So they come to Joshua and say, look, these people don't have the heart to fight. They're scared to death. All the inhabitants of the land melt away because of this. Do you remember chapter 1 and verse 2? Go back there and look at it. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan. He's speaking to Joshua, God, as you and all this people into the land, notice this, that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. That is a promise. These spies believe that promise, don't they? This is in contrast to numbers. When those 10 scaredy cats came back and they said, I, I, I don't think we can do this. Joshua and Caleb, what are you talking about? God, it's going to happen. All we got to do is go in there. He's promised it. 
Well, now I think they learned their lesson, don't you? These Israelites, 20 years and older, now they're much older. They don't want to make the same mistake. They trust in God's saving protection. You know, I I should just make a couple of concluding remarks of application from this story. Number one, walking by faith as Rahab did will come with a cost. Jesus said, count the cost, calculate it. Think about Rahab, an Amorite. The only life she ever knew was a life of paganism and a life of immorality. She repudiated all of that. She was subsumed into the Israelite society. Her main identity was now a God-fearing Gentile. Her real place and real home was with these Israelite foreigners with strange customs and a bad reputation. She counted the cost. And I want you to know that Christianity lived out by true faith will always cost you. If it does not cost you friends, you're doing something wrong. If it doesn't cost you relatives, you are living in disobedience. If it does not cost you maybe a job or your reputation, then you're compromising somewhere. There's sin in the camp somewhere. It will cost you. And here's the point. If it's worth it to you, then you can have confidence tonight that you have real faith, that you possess true faith that works. So walking by faith as Rahab did comes with a cost. And the second thing that I would tell you by way of application is that walking by faith as Rahab did requires trusting in a promise yet unseen. That's how the Bible describes faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Think of those walls of Jericho. We're going to talk about them here in a few weeks. The safety and security from a human standpoint that they represented. And we'll go into the details of the construction of those walls in a few weeks. But those walls are sort of a symbol. True faith like Rahab's is trusting in the unseen, not what you see. Not not the security of walls, not the security of money and possessions, not the security of a job or a reputation. No. Rahab cast all that to the wind. She simply heard a report about a strange God she didn't know and she believed in that God who she never saw. She walked by faith. She took refuge, not behind the walls of Jericho, but in the mighty fortress of our almighty God. And I don't know what you're facing in your life. I know with as many people that are here tonight, there are trials to go around the room. And if we were to share the things that are on our heart, we would probably all be in tears and would maybe throw our hands up and maybe fall on our faces and pray for one another. But I know this, a mighty fortress is our God. Do you have the faith of Rahab? She's commended in the New Testament. Well, she lied, she deceived. Yeah, she did. She did, and she's commended for it. What a heroic woman of faith. What a model and an example. And yet we have Christians in our pansy society that are afraid of what people might think. Who cares? Are you living faithfully to God? Is your conscience clear? Can you stand before God and say, I'm doing my best? If you can and you walk by faith, God will bless you. That's the message for tonight. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. 